So the specific passage that we're going to be looking at today is Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. So if you want to turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 18, or you can use the insert that's in your bulletin, we'll be looking at verses 9 to 14. So I'm going to read the passage for us and then just say a brief word of prayer as we dive in. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning. I pray that you would open up our eyes that we might behold wondrous things therein. And as we behold wondrous things in your word, may you woo our hearts to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, who is our perfect Savior and who has provided so generously for all that we need. We pray that we would trust him more deeply with every breath we take. In his name we pray. Amen. So in our passage today, which is found in the Gospel of Luke, just to set some context, Jesus is addressing his disciples with the end of his ministry in sight. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and in the next chapter, chapter 19, he's going to be arriving in Jerusalem, and that's going to lead to the events of what we commonly call the Passion, so leading up to the final events of his life, the Last Supper, his betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane, his eventual trial, his death, and of course his resurrection three days later. And at this moment in the gospel, Jesus has been spending time teaching about the kingdom of God. In other words, his uh, teaching has been addressing how does the behavior, how do his disciples act within that kingdom of God? What does it look like to faithfully adhere to the kingdom of God? How do his believers stay faithful in an unfaithful world? He does this through telling a story called a parable. So what's a parable? The Gospels, especially the Gospel of Luke, are filled with parables. We can think of the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the dishonest manager, the parable of the talents, the parable of the sower. And a simple definition of a parable that I've heard, and perhaps you have as well, is that it's an earthly story with the heavenly meaning. But I think this definition kind of makes parables sound a bit like they're folk tales, you know, maybe something you might tell around a campfire, but I don't think it fully captures what exactly parables do. In in, uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 9, Jesus says this about parables when he's talking with his disciples. He says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. And this means that parables in God's mysterious wisdom and in his providence conceal truth just as much as they reveal it. And this idea of seeing but not seeing or hearing but not understanding, that actually comes from the Old Testament and from Isaiah specifically. And it's not just connecting Jesus's mission with the Old Testament, but it's also showing that some are not going to believe 
in Jesus's message while others will. So what does this parable, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, which is a parable of two sinners who pray to the Lord, what does it teach us about what it means to follow Jesus and to live the Christian life? Well, sometimes there are challenging parts of scripture where we have to kind of, we can debate over what, the, what uh, they mean or what God is teaching us through them, but this passage in particular, I don't want to make muddy what I think God has made very clear. In verse 9 of this parable, Luke tells us immediately who the audience is that Jesus is telling this parable to. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Likewise, in verse 14, he tells us what we're supposed to take away from this parable. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So let's unpack the message of this parable, that God exalts the humble by taking a closer look at the three main characters of the story. We've got the Pharisee, the tax collector, and then the narrator of the parable, Jesus. I think the more that we meditate on this parable, the more we'll see ourselves and the more we'll see the Savior that we so desperately need. So first, let's look at the Pharisee. You know, if you're, if you're not a Christian or you're someone who's here and you're not familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard this word Pharisee or the word Pharisaical, and you automatically think negative things, right? Because if someone's being Pharisaical, there's someone who's being hypocritical or there's someone who's being self-righteous. And if you've been a Christian for a while or you've, you're familiar with the Bible, you know that that definition makes sense because Jesus spends a lot of time in the Gospels condemning the self-hypocrisy and self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Think of earlier in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 11, a Pharisee is dining with Jesus and can't believe that Jesus did not wash before dinner. Jesus responds by saying in verse 39 of chapter 11, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? He goes on to say in verse 42, But woe to you Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the, love, and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And with encounters such as these, it's easy for us to hear a story about the Pharisee and the tax collector and immediately think, okay, the Pharisee is going to be the villain of the story. But let's also remember, didn't Jesus spend time with Pharisees in his ministry? I mean, the passage that we just read occurred when Jesus was dining with a Pharisee. You can think also of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He has a very honest inquiry and conversation with Jesus where Jesus tells him that none can see the kingdom of God who are not born again. And that famous passage where Jesus tells Nicodemus that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And what about the apostle Paul? Philippians chapter 3, he's reciting his qualifications, and he calls himself a Pharisee, meaning that he's very diligent in keeping the law. So it's important to note that while we in our 21st century day, we hear the term Pharisee and we immediately think negative things, Jesus' disciples, when they hear the word Pharisee and people of his time, would have immediately thought very positive things because these were people viewed by society as exceptional. I mean, even the word Pharisee, it comes from a word that means separate or separate ones. And here's a helpful description I found of what a Pharisee does. Um, it says, It was the purpose of the Pharisees to take the pattern of a pious Israelite as established by the scribes and put it into practice as nearly as possible. 
So if you were a, f- uh, a Jewish person in Jesus' time, and you were wondering, what does it look like to live a faithful life? You would typically look at the Pharisees, because it was the job of the Pharisees to read Moses, to read the prophets, and then put what they were teaching into practice. So let's take a look at this Pharisee and see what we can learn from him. Verse 11 of Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells us that the Pharisee, upon arriving at the temple to pray, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, this prayer of the Pharisee is really a prayer of self-congratulations. He's, Luke even tells us that the Pharisee is standing by himself, and that kind of mimics the words that he says, words that are of self-sufficiency. His words may be addressed to the Lord, but his focus is completely on himself. Now, we know from the Bible it's very clear that each and every human being on this planet is a sinner. Each of us are rebels who have chosen our own desire above the Lord, and we're each desperately trying to be the Lord of our own life. And something that's so refreshing about the scriptures is how honest they are about how the people of God, even those we hold up as great heroes of the faith, even those we look up to, they also fall easily into sin. I mean, think back to, again, the book of Genesis, Abraham, the father of many nations, that father of great faith who, when God said, go out to the land that I will show you, goes and trusts and leaves in faith, but Remember that just a few chapters later, he's hiding the fact that Sarah is his wife, which brings suffering and misery to the people around him. You can think about Moses, the great prophet of the Lord that God raises up to bring his people out of bondage in Egypt and eventually leads them um, across uh, Sinai towards the promised land. But he can't go into the promised land because of the anger that he showed and the unrighteous wrath. So God tells him you can look into the promised land, but you can't go in. You can think about David, the man after God's own heart, who also is guilty of murder with Uriah and adultery with Bathsheba. Even in the New Testament, Peter, right, the person who first confesses Jesus as the Christ, just at the end of Jesus' ministry is denying him three times. Then Paul, the writer of so much of the New Testament, calls himself the chief of sinners because he's very aware that he is still someone who sins. But this prayer of the Pharisee, who is himself a sinner, he doesn't seem like he understands that he is one, right? I mean, look back at verse 11. Aside from mentioning God at the beginning of his prayer, does the Pharisee ask anything of God? Does he seem to have come to the temple to pray in need of anything? You know, it's not wrong to come before the Lord with thanksgiving. In fact, we're told by the Apostle Paul, give thanks in all circumstances. And it's right and good to set aside specific times to pray to give thanks to the Lord. But this Pharisee steps right into the holiness of God in his temple and is foolishly confident of his own cleanliness. I mean, if we look again at the other men that he mentions in his prayer, they seem to remind us of some of the Ten Commandments, right? Lying, adultery, stealing. The Pharisee is quite confident that he's morally blameless in keeping these laws. But what about some of the other commandments? What about that you would have no other gods before me? What about the Pharisee's obedience with loving the Lord God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength? His adherence to these commands is absent. And it reminds me a little bit of the story of the rich ruler, which is going to come in the next chapter of Luke, 
Maybe you are familiar with it as well, where a rich ruler encounters Jesus and asks him what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus tells him, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Well, I've kept all these from my youth, boasts the ruler. But once again, what is he missing? What about having no other gods before him? The Pharisee and the ruler may have been in keeping, may have been exceptional in keeping portions of the law, and outwardly to many people they have a piety that's very commendable, and they knew it, but at the same time their focus on themselves causes them to miss the point of the commandments and what they're supposed to show us, what God requires of us, and how we fall short of the splendor of his holiness. So I think Jesus is giving us with the Pharisee a perfect picture of what it looks like to trust in ourselves that we're righteous and treat others with contempt. Even when we come before God in prayer, we're using it as an opportunity to portray our self-righteousness and judgment of others. And I think with the audience of the parable, we should ask ourselves, how are we like the Pharisee? I mean, it's a bit scary to think that it's possible to be outwardly very pious and at the same time for that piety to be worthless because it's so misguided. And I confess to you, the more that I've meditated on this passage, the more I can see myself. You know, I may not be literally praying to the Lord, God, thank you so much that I'm not like this person over here, but my actions show that I find my identity and my acceptance before God in my good behavior or in keeping certain aspects of the law. If I'm basing my acceptance before God on outward appearance or outward behavior, then think about it. It becomes very easy to look at others who may be struggling in certain areas and to condemn them. So I ask, do you see yourself in the Pharisee in this story? Clearly, Jesus meant for his listeners of this parable to do so. And I remember it reminded me I had one professor in school who told me, you know, there's always one prayer that God will always answer. Lord, please show me my sin. Because it's not an easy prayer to pray, but it's a convicting one. And it also can be an antidote to a heart that's standing by itself and proclaiming its own righteousness. I mean, what would the church of Jesus look like if we prayed that prayer, Lord, please show me my sin more often? But there's also a second man who journeys up to the temple to pray as well. So let's take some time to also look at the tax collector. In ancient Israel, the tax collector, I mean, he is the complete polar opposite of the Pharisee. The Pharisee would have been someone who's educated, someone who would have been a source of national pride, a source of a great uh, a role model for children. But the tax collector is someone who would be a source of shame, a reminder that Israel is living under an occupying force in the Roman Empire. The audience of Jesus probably would have expected a story about a tax collector to contain some very strong words of rebuke and opposition towards someone who would be such a, a blatant villain. I mean, tax collectors were people charged with collecting funds for the Roman Empire, and they were also well known for using their opportunities to line their own pockets. And also, because of their work with non-Jews, they would have been considered ceremonially unclean. But while Pharisees were seen as the pinnacle of Jewish society for their law-keeping and their knowledge, tax collectors would have been seen as a disgrace because they defrauded their own countrymen for a chance at a bigger piece of the pie for themselves. But just as we looked at Jesus' strong words against the Pharisees and yet how he spent time with Pharisees in his ministry, 
We can also see many examples in Jesus's ministry of him spending time with tax collectors. Remember, I mean, even Matthew, one of the authors of the Gospels, is a tax or was a tax collector. Think about it. One of the authors of Holy Scripture through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, someone who's ceremonially unclean, gets handpicked by Jesus to be his disciple, and he ends up writing one of the Gospels. You can also think about Zacchaeus, right? One of the chief tax collectors who later in the book of Luke comes about. He places himself in a publicly humiliating posture by climbing up a tree to see Jesus as Jesus is passing by on his way to Jerusalem. And Jesus looks up and sees Zacchaeus in the tree and says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And this causes the surrounding crowd to grumble and say these words, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And if you think about it, that's actually a really great way to sum up a significant element of Jesus's ministry. He goes in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And as a result of his time with Jesus, Zacchaeus undergoes radical transformation. Jesus proclaims salvation has come to his house. Jesus goes in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And the sinner leaves a transformed person. Now, this tax collector of our parable arrives at the temple in need of change, just as the Pharisee does. And in verse 13, Jesus tells us that the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. And those aren't throwaway details that Luke is communicating. He's communicating to us the deep, deep sense of unworthiness and sorrow that the tax collector feels when he's approaching a holy God. He's sensing that his sin even prevents him from looking up to God. If he's going to do something physical, he's going to beat his breast as a sign of deep remorse and penitence. And that's a, something that's consistent with, with the people of God when sinners approach holiness. Back in the Old Testament, one of the more famous passages, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord and his on his throne, he hears the seraphim angels say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah doesn't respond by saying, Wow, Lord, I thank you so much that I've been deemed worthy to see this vision because I'm a prophet and I know that you have looked on my good deeds and now I can see this. No, he says, Woe is me, for I'm lost, or in King James language, I'm undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Or you can think about the Apostle Peter earlier in Luke. Remember, he's lets down his fishing nets after a night of catching nothing because Jesus t tells him to do so. So he lets them down begrudgingly, and suddenly the nets start filling up with so many fish that the boat begins to sink. Peter falls down to his knees at the sight and says, Depart from me, because I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He's been confronted with something that's so different from himself that he just unravels at the sight of it. And so similar to Isaiah, similar to Peter, when the tax collector encounters the Lord, his words respond by reflecting that of his situation. While his prayer, like that of the Pharisee, begins by addressing God, they both begin with God, he says something much different. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that word, be merciful, it actually could also be translated, make atonement for me. And I mean, that's pretty remarkable. The tax collector recognizes what he brings to the Lord is nothing. 
If anything, if someone's going to bring something, it has to be the Lord for him to be able to receive the forgiveness that he so desperately needs. And so as we meditate on the tax collector, here's something to consider. This is someone who would have been despised by the people around him. And yet in this moment, this sinner's prayer is truthful, it's honest, it's biblically sound because he needs God to intervene on his behalf. And because of this recognition, he's a spiritually rich man. He sees that God and God alone is the one he needs. As a result, Jesus tells us at the beginning of verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The Pharisee, the sinner who saw the Lord as the validator of his self-righteousness, walked away empty. The humble tax collector, the sinner who saw the Lord as his only hope for righteousness, his only hope for forgiveness, walks away restored and exalted by the Lord. And friends, this is good news for us because maybe you're here today and you're feeling guilty about something that's happened this past week. Or maybe you're feeling guilt about something that happened this past month or this past year or 10 years ago. Perhaps you feel this is something you can't share with anyone because of the deep shame you feel. But be encouraged. Begin by confessing to the Lord The tax collector's prayer is simple. It's straightforward. It doesn't use many words. It's honest. He confesses his need for forgiveness. Use his prayer. Perhaps you are here and you're not even sure how to pray because prayer has been difficult for you these past few months. You feel distracted. You feel distanced from the Lord. I encourage you, pray your lack of prayerlessness back to the Lord. Humbly ask for the Lord to be merciful. Ask him to lift you up. I remember I personally was going through a season of trauma and frustration and sadness and sorrow, and it was very hard for me to pray. And my mom taught me a very simple prayer that I sometimes still use when the words of prayer are hard to find. It's very simple. It's just simply, I trust you, God. I trust you, God. And, you know, I also was reminded of One Presbyterian pastor who wants to use an expression that Presbyterian pastors don't often use, he said, there are times that we have to pray ourselves hot. And what he means by this is there are times when we have to remind ourselves of the truths of God's word, and we have to encourage ourselves with the promises of his word. And if you've been around the church for a while, you can think about some of the old hymns that we find in our Trinity hymnal and how so many of them are us talking to ourselves to encourage ourselves to praise the Lord. I mean, think about, arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. My name is written on his hands. And newer songs sometimes pick up on this as well. There's Bless the Lord, O my soul. O my soul, worship his holy name, picking up on the language of the Psalms. And I think sometimes we can fall under the false impression that the Christian life is somehow supposed to be easy and we're not supposed to put in any work on ourselves because that would be legalism for us to struggle for Christian joy, but nothing could be further from the truth. We should instead see our tired, weary, sinful open hands as an opportunity to go before the Lord and confess how much we need him. So let's conclude by looking together at the third person in our story, the parable's narrator, Jesus. 
Jesus concludes the parable with the interpretive point in verse 14. He says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee who exalts himself through listing his glowing resume of law-keeping doesn't receive the justification and forgiveness of the Lord. Meanwhile, the tax collector, the scourge of society, humbly confesses his need for forgiveness and repents. He leaves the temple forgiven. And I think if we just see this message of God lifting up the humble as something that applies just to us, we actually miss something really beautiful about the life of Jesus. Because for the person who is humbled will be exalted, I think Jesus actually is the one who fulfills that perfectly. Think about the life of Jesus. When he's speaking to his disciples in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says this, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ, the eternal God who was never created, has always existed, has created all things that we see, became a human being. He gave up his glory joyfully and humbly, and he came to serve his people who had rejected and turned against him, that we might be restored and brought back into relationship with him. Remember at the Last Supper, John records that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. He then washed the feet of his disciples, which was the duty of a servant. And what was the reason? Why would, it, why would he do such a thing? Well, God had put all things into his hands. Jesus could have done anything to showcase his power to the world, but instead he showcases it by humbling himself to the lowest position his disciples could probably imagine. But of course, the ultimate example and clearest example of Jesus' humility is his death on the cross. At a moment when God seemed least in control, God was most in control. Jesus, for the joy set before him, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, the death of a common criminal. Paul tells us in Philippians that, therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So you see, when Jesus calls us to humble ourselves, that we might be exalted, he's not calling us to do something that he hasn't done first. The message of this parable is Christ-likeness. What does it look like to follow Jesus? Well, we begin and we continue by humbling ourselves before a holy God, by confessing our need for him and the wrongs that we've willingly committed in his sight, knowing full well with confidence that Jesus sympathizes with us, that he's with us, and that he'll hold us until the day that we see him face to face. As I was thinking about this parable, I was reminded of a story uh, from a pastor I know. It was the first funeral that he had to give after he had graduated seminary. He had just taken a job 
in his first church in rural Virginia. And he went to meet a woman who was dying in a nursing home so that he could prepare to preach her funeral. This woman who was in the nursing home told the pastor this. She said, Pastor, my husband is dead. My children are dead. I can't read. I can't cook. I've got nothing left but Jesus. And you know, I think that's actually really kind of him because I'm going to be with him forever and he's just getting me ready for him to be everything to me. And I remember hearing this story and thinking, this is someone who is dying in a nursing home, who has experienced tremendous sorrow by losing her husband, by losing her children. She can't read. She can't do anything of the basic pleasures of life. And yet, she sounds like someone who is so incredibly rich and someone who has incredible faith. And friends, that same God who gives us the faith to continue to trust in him when it's so incredibly hard, that same God holds each of us. The more we humble ourselves, the more we confess and see the shortcomings of the trappings of this world, the more we'll see Jesus as the one who is sufficient to carry us and to guide us through each day and safely home. We're living in a world that is screaming at us to keep our hands tightly wrapped around our lives and to get what's coming to us before it's too late. But the countercultural message of Jesus is to take our hands off of our lives and entrust ourselves to our faithful Savior because it's only when we lose our lives for his sake that we find them and we can trust him. So we've spent time this morning looking at a passage of scripture where two sinners approach the Lord in prayer. Jesus has told us that only one had a posture of humility and only one asked for mercy. His prayer rather than the other was heard. So if you're here today and you're in need of mercy, I encourage you, approach the throne of grace with humility, but with also with confidence, knowing that there is exactly where the Lord desires you to be. It's by confessing our sins, confessing Jesus as Lord, not ourselves, and confessing that God has raised Jesus from the dead, that we will be saved from our sins and from the wrath we deserve. So like the tax collector, we need only bring our cares, our guilt, and our open hands to him as we say together with the hymn writer, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that his death on the cross means that we will never be alone because we can trust that you see us, that you are a God who delights when your people come before you and confess their need for you. Lord, I confess that I'm a sinful man in need of your grace and your mercy. Would you pour that out on us today, especially as we approach the Lord's table? We thank you for Jesus and that he is all sufficient for every one of our needs. We pray for the grace and strength and mercy to trust him more with every part of our lives. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.